Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. When you hold a senior or powerful role, it's easy to think you're entitled to a better seat, the larger office, the best car park. It's partly easy because the company you work at has all the systems in place to ensure the perks of a big role flow straight through to you. In this episode, we explore what happens if you turn this on its head. The guest is a FW Mentor of the Year, Nitti Nataraja. Nitti is also a freelance general counsel, executive coach, and she has a string of qualifications. Today, we explore the benefits of leaders going last and what this can do to a workplace and your career prospects. Nitti Nataraja, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. It's very exciting to have you here because... You have been involved with FW since the very beginning of time, from memory anyway. So you might um, remember it differently, but from my perspective, you've been around since the business began. Tell us a bit about your career prior to becoming an executive coach. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Thanks for having me on the podcast, firstly. So, My career has spanned about 20-ish years so far. I started in private practice as a lawyer in Melbourne and then spent a few years in Melbourne, moved to London for a bit for five years, came back to Sydney and then decided to move in-house. So moved in-house and was part of the legal team and then decided to move up the ladder or got promoted up the ladder and became the head of the legal team locally. So yeah, it's been a pretty interesting journey and, you know, things have evolved quite radically in the last few years, particularly. And, you know, I've been really grateful to be a part of Future Women's journey over the last, I think it's been about four years now. So yeah, a while. Why did you make the change from a a very successful corporate career to all of the risks associated with going out on your own and becoming an executive coach? Oh, so many reasons. I think a lot happened in the lead up to the pandemic for me. So I had my second child in August of 2019 and had a lot of time to think whilst I was on parental leave with him and returned to work on the 16th of March 2020. I don't think I'll ever forget the date because it was just as the pandemic was really starting to hit. And I had already at that time had some thoughts about not necessarily wanting to do what I was doing, but felt very stuck. 
I didn't really know what else I could do. And so for me, it was a thought process around, well, maybe I just need to change jobs at a point in time. Maybe that's what I need to do. And then the pandemic hit. And so that wasn't an option anymore. And so I stayed put. And one thing that really affected me at that time was having autoimmune issues and being in the middle of the pandemic really brought my own personal sense of mortality to light and made me really reflect on life and the remainder of life and what I was going to do with that. And interestingly, I started turning to social media, particularly LinkedIn, as a way to connect with people, to share my stories. I really wanted to talk about what was happening in my home with my two kids. I had a six-year-old at the time and a little baby working from home in Melbourne with all of our lockdowns and then trying to juggle the hecticness of being the head of a legal team, trying to be a parent as well, managing remote learning. And so I started to talk about that quite a lot on LinkedIn. And as I talked more and more about it, I started to connect with all these amazing people who were doing all these incredible things in their life. And it made me realize, actually, there is so much that I am so passionate about and it had always brought to workplaces with me but always felt that I was never really leaning into fully. And so over the next couple of years, I did a lot of work on really discovering who I was and what I really wanted to do and just uncovering some of those passions, discovering what lit me up. And through that process, really started to explore things like coaching. I'd always loved working with people. Developing people had always been a real passion of mine. And so... That was what kind of led me down the track to become an executive coach in time, but not just coaching, also to do work in the equity-related space because diversity, equity, inclusion has always been a passion as well and always something I wanted to make a difference in and always kind of felt that I wasn't really doing enough in or with. Now, I'm going to ask this question delicately because it feels quite rude, so bear with me. But were you... Were you- good leader when you were a leader? Or do you think you've, you'd have you be like a really good leader now that you know so much more about it? It's a really good question. Um, I think, to be honest, I, I think I was a pretty good leader when I was working in the corporate world. I have always believed in people first, business second, because I firmly believe that when you put people first, then they will put the business first. So that was always my motto as a leader. And I really took a lot from all the negative experiences I had in workplaces over the years, all the leaders I saw doing things that I really did not like, but also from the leaders who were pretty amazing and who gave me a voice and who really supported me and encouraged me, gave me autonomy and freedom to be myself. So I think I brought all of that to my leadership. However, (laughs) there is one thing that I think I did not fully understand when I was a leader. And that is what it actually means to coach people when you are a leader of people. So now that I am in the coaching space, I have a very different mindset towards what that actually means. And we talk about it a lot in workplaces. It's such a buzzword, right? That you need to be this coach for your people. But what 
often ends up happening and what I did as well as a leader was make a lot of assumptions about what people needed, wanted, should do and brought my own opinions into that. And that's not to say that that's wrong because I think there's a time and place for doing that as well. But I think I probably over-relied on that and could have given people a lot more autonomy than possibly what I did at the time. What are the most common issues that you tackle as an executive coach today? Mm, It's quite varied. So in my personal coaching, a lot of that is about careers. And it's really about helping people who are feeling like I did, a bit stuck in their careers, to discover what it is they want. And one thing that often happens, I think, is that people look to the external world for answers when they're feeling stuck in their careers. So they'll ask for advice or they'll look to change jobs. But often when we do that, I think we take our baggage with us. And for me, that's a big part of the process of coaching people is to uncover that baggage to ensure that when they do move on, even if they do just change jobs within the same industry, that they're not taking all of those things with them and that they can really put their best foot forward. So a lot of that involves really helping people, particularly women, I I coach women predominantly, to discover who they are. And I think that in itself is a big big issue and something that comes up all the time, particularly for women who have kids or caring responsibilities more broadly, we often lose ourselves in amidst all the caring that we do for other people. And so we have these labels, these dual labels of mum or carer and then career woman, let's say, or career person. And we take those labels and in amidst that, we lose our sense of self. And so a lot of the work I do is really helping people to uncover who they are, what their hang-ups are, what holds them back, what their limiting beliefs are, but also what are they passionate about? It's a really interesting question when I ask people what they love in life. A lot of the time people really struggle. You know, they'll say things like, I love to spend time with my family. Or, you know, I love to, I don't know, I love X, Y, Z at work. But when it comes to all those other things that they might love, they often can't bring those to mind straight away. So a large part of the coaching process is really looking into some of those things as well as their skills. And I think that's another thing that is often very surface level for people. We talk about things like I'm good at organising stuff or I'm good at communicating. And I'll say to people, but what does that actually mean? What are you good at when it comes to communicating? What are you good at when it comes to organizing things? And let's step away from just these corporate buzzwords that we use to describe skills to actually look at some of the processes that you use on a daily basis, even at home. And there's so much magic in what people do at home really well that we use in our workplaces without even realizing like there's so much unconscious competence in skill sets and that's where the real magic lies and for me that's a big part of what I help people to do but also there's a lot of work I do in the parental leave space and also in the gender equity space mainly through grace papers at the moment and so that is very much helping individuals of whatever gender because I think dads are equally as important as mums in this equation, 
helping people to navigate those transitions to and from parental leave and back to work and what that looks like, but also helping managers of those people to be able to ask the questions that they have in a safe space and also to navigate their own biases in a way that's actually more likely to stick than, say, bias training, which is what we often look to do when it comes to unconscious bias. So they're, they're some of the key things that come up when I'm coaching people. But, you know, there's a range. You know, coaching is one of those things you go with whatever the person brings to the table and that can be quite varied, really. I just want to say to our listeners that Nitty is one of our most popular mentors and we run small group mentoring. And, you know, Nitty, you, you come up all the time as a favourite in those sessions and I can see why, because I think there are a lot of people listening to this, including myself, who would struggle to explain what it is that I love doing and what it is that I'm good at versus what do I want to be seen to be good at. You know, organizing is really interesting. I often get people who say to me they want to run a team in job interviews. And I find that worrying because if you just want to run a team, it doesn't mean you're good at it. It just means you like to be the boss. And so I can see why your insights are super valuable, which brings me to something that I want to explore with you. And that is the idea that a leader should put themselves in the role of a servant to their teams, not as superior to their teams. And this is something that, you know, you, you hear not a lot, to be honest. It's pretty rare that you hear this concept talked about. But I'm interested to unpack it a little with you and see whether it is something that we can all attempt to do more often when we're leaders. Can you tell me if you've seen this approach and, and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right to say that we hear about it, but not as often as perhaps we could or should. I think it is incredibly effective when done well, because I think what you end up doing as a leader when you are putting yourself last in some respects, which is, you know, kind of what servant leadership is about, really having your teams back and ensuring you're there for them and you're putting them first. I think when leaders do that, you really build a lot of trust in the team. And we live in a world which is so lacking in trust, you know, whether it's in politics, whether it's in workplaces, wherever it might be, there is so little trust. All of our policies, procedures are designed around that lowest common denominator of people who are going to do the wrong thing. And so I think when as a leader, you can lean into the opposite of that and give your people trust to do the right thing, then you are really giving them that freedom and autonomy to A, bring themselves to the table, to B, make mistakes, you know, fail fast, learn and move on. And to really be able to express where they are and what they're feeling. And in a world that is not just lacking in trust, but also quite fraught at the moment with so many of the things that are going on in the world, I think we all need a little bit of compassionate space 
in workplaces. And that is often lacking, particularly when you do have this very authoritarian type of leadership in place of, say, servant leadership. So I do think it can be done really well. What do you think, because I go to a whole range of ideas, if I was to kind of go, right, that's what I am going to do for the first half of 2024, I'm going to practice this concept. What do you think it looks like in practice? Mm. Yeah, interesting. I think it looks like having the back of your people, so protecting them as and when they need protecting. I think that's a really big thing. And I think this goes to the superiority issue. If a leader is someone who is going to throw their people under the bus the minute a mistake is made, then that to me is incredibly problematic. So I think the opposite occurs when you do have leaders who are doing this particularly well. So I think that's one. I think two, it's really looking out for your people when it comes to things like burnout. I mean, burnout is something we've talked about a lot over the last many years, particularly through COVID. And even in the aftermath of COVID, as we have people returning to offices and, you know, more and more the whole work from home mentality is starting to shift again a little bit. So I think burnout is very real. And I think leaders who do this really well are very conscious of what do my people need And how can I lean into those needs and really support them where they're at? And that includes burnout and includes being proactive around methods, strategies, action plans around how to change the status quo as opposed to just talking about things, which is, I think, what we often do when it comes to issues like burnout, for example. But, you know, equally, I think allowing people to be themselves, allowing people to show up as and how they are, allowing people to express when things are a little bit difficult and when they are struggling a bit. But, you know, and equally, and I think a big part of that particular point is how as a leader, do you lean into your own sense of vulnerability and how do you lean into silence? How do you lean into holding space for people? How do you ask questions and get curious about what people need versus rushing to solve problems, to fix things, to be the person that's kind of dictating how the team does things effectively. Simon Sinek, the author that first came up with the concept of understanding your why, has written a book called Leaders Eat Last. So when I think about leading from behind or even in the middle, and I'm really interested to hear what you think about this, I think of pushing against the structures that says, I'm the CEO, so I get the best office. I'm the CEO, so I get the best seat at the dinner that I'm going to or that I'm hosting, I get the car park closest to the lift in the most accessible spot. I speak a lot less. I make myself uh, one of the group in a way that is not just performative, but it's actually tangible. You actually see that the leader is 
immersed in the business versus above the business. Is that possible? And is that advisable? And have you seen that kind of leadership style in practice? So have I seen that in practice? Probably not to the things that you're saying, because I think the way we work and structure workplaces and the hierarchies that we build into them are so regimented. And so when it comes to things like, you know, the the car park spot or, uh, you know, how you're interacting with your team, etc., I think some of that is generally lacking. Like I don't think that exists in many workplaces. I think the bits that do exist sometimes are the how do you ensure that your people are having as much of a voice in these rooms as you are, or perhaps even more at times. And I, this for me was a big learning through my career. When you go from being a doer to suddenly being the manager of people, because as a doer, you need to put yourself out there and you need to somehow find ways to shine. But when you're a manager of people, you need to find ways to help your team members shine. And that is very different. And also, I think sometimes people can become dependent almost on the fact that you will respond to things and you will share your views. And so there's this real dynamic in the team around how do I ensure that they have that voice and can speak up in, say, meetings with management or present on big topics and that I will take a seat back, but equally ensure that they, A, feel comfortable doing that, but B, if they do make a mistake, that you're going to stand behind them in that moment and not be there saying, well, oh, well, that was so-and-so's fault and they made a mistake and actually the answer is X, Y, Z. And I think that's quite a tricky thing to navigate. So I think it it does happen, but it doesn't happen enough because I think we're not really taught how to manage that transition between doing and managing very well. It's something we almost organically expect people to suddenly just pick up when they become a manager. And I think this is where we start to have problems in workplaces where you have people who are managing people who are not equipped with the skills or the tools to do that at that point in time. Yeah, I think that's really a really excellent point. And I also question the concept of leaders eating last from the perspective of, in my experience, it depends on the organisation and the, and the seniority and the experience, but if you're leading a a mid-sized team of 20s to 30-year-olds, they do like leadership. You know, they like a leader to kind of set the framework and the goal. And often it's like, well, you're the boss. You tell us what to do. We're not, you know, why why push that responsibility out into the rest of the organisation? I also interviewed um, the chairman of Collingwood recently, Jeff Brown, and it was interesting, Nitty, because he's a, very male style of leader Um, and we talked about a winning culture and he was very clear about the requirement of a leader to be decisive and so I you know I think those two concepts could get confused I think it, it is it is 
helpful if you've got a decisive leader. But that doesn't mean, and this is why I'm interested, but that doesn't mean you have to have the best office and the best car park and, you know, the, the, all of the trappings of success. I mean, you can, I think you can lead without those status symbols, for want of a better way of describing it. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think there are a couple of things in what you just said. So one thing I believe is really important when it comes to leadership is being able to flex your leadership style. I think what you're talking about just now in terms of that winning sort of leadership, you know, or winning, uh, I don't know what the word was that you used, but essentially being decisive, I think that's important at times. It's very important. So you think about situations like, uh, you know, uh, high-risk medical situations. You need leaders in those situations to make decisions and you need to make decisions fast because there is so much that is at risk potentially if a decision is not made in time. And so sometimes you don't have that ability in that moment to step back and go, well, let me just let all the juniors work through this and decide what to do in this moment, you need to be more authoritarian and more decisive in that moment. And then there are other moments where you need to be a little bit more democratic with your leadership and potentially seek the opinions of the people around you. And, you know, change management is a really good example where if you don't bring people along the journey for massive changes in organisations they're going to largely be detractors or be adopting the change late. But if you can bring them along the journey earlier and seek their opinions, find out what it is that they believe, want, feel, etc., then I think you're far more likely to have early adopters for some of those changes. So I think it's really important when we're thinking about leadership to not get too fixated on this is the leadership style I need to lean into, but rather start to think about it from the perspective of, well, who am I? What are the things that inform the way I operate in the world? What are the things I bring to the table again in terms of skills, um, in terms of strengths? How can I lean into those? And how can I ensure that A, I'm responsive to feedback that I get from other people in my team or in the broader workplace that I'm working in, but also flex my leadership according to the situations and the demands of the situations, which could include, as you rightly said, the demographics of the environment. So if you're dealing with very experienced people who are even potentially more senior than you, you might need to adopt a different style of leadership in that moment than if you are working with very junior people who are just starting their career and really looking for that guidance, that support, a little bit of handholding to guide them to the next step. Let's jump to mentoring. What do you think makes a good mentor? <laughs> that feels like a loaded question yes, as a mentor. You are the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what do I think makes a good mentor? Listening, I think, number one, right? I think. And this goes for leadership too. I think listening is key as a mentor. You need to really listen for the things that people are telling you. I think secondly, the relationship between you as a mentee, I think needs to be led by the mentee in some respects. And I'm talking here about individual mentoring, but I think it applies equally in group mentoring. So I think the person being mentored really needs to lead the direction of where the mentoring is going. 
And so I think when you're mentoring people, I think it's then about giving people advice, but also recognizing that everyone's experience is different. And so whilst you can give people advice from your own perspective, from your own experiences, etc., it's also ensuring that you're not just simply superimposing your experience onto the other person's experience, but rather giving them the tools, the tips, tricks, guidance that they can apply to their own personal situation effectively. So I think there's some of the things for me that are really important. In my mentoring as a coach as well, I obviously bring a little bit of coaching into my mentoring, so it's a little bit blended. So I do ask a lot of questions. And I think even as a mentor, I think you do need to do that. Ask a lot of questions, seek to understand, be really curious about where the person is at and what is going on for them. And sometimes, just like in coaching, mirroring back to the person, some of the things that they're reflecting at you is really important. Helping them to see their strengths where they might not see them themselves, I think is a really key thing. Sometimes people say things to you or they'll say things in a certain way that makes you think, wow, this person is really good at X, Y, Z. But then when you ask them about their strengths, they don't bring up those things. And so I think being able to reflect that back at people is really useful as well. And it depends, you know, if you're in a workplace situation and you're mentoring someone who's more junior than you, I think it's helping that person to navigate the workplace environment based on your own experience, based on your knowledge of the people in that workplace and how the politics of the organisation work, for example. And one thing we haven't touched on but I think is really important as well is sponsorship in the mix. You know, there's coaching, there's mentoring and then there's sponsorship. And I think if you're a mentor who can also act as a sponsor for individuals, particularly individuals in an organisation who are a little bit more marginalised perhaps or disadvantaged from an intersectional perspective, then I think that is something to really lean into. How can I learn about what this person is achieving on a professional level, what they bring to the table, and how can I advocate for this person in the rooms that matter? Nitty, you started the interview by talking about having a, having the big corporate job and having that moment of reflection in your life where you decided to do something radically different, which was start your own business and become an executive coach. And as you said, joined FW as a speaker and mentor. What advice do you have for anyone inspired by your story today if they want to make a career pivot in the same way that you've done? So number one, you don't have to do it alone. I think that's really important. Talk to people, um, whoever they might be. And I'm not necessarily saying reach out to a coach, but talk to people, get advice and guidance from other people. Secondly, I think one of the fallacies that we often have when it comes to career pivots is that we need to leap off a cliff in order to make a career pivot, or it can feel like leaping off a cliff. And I often say to people who come to me, if you think about visually the or physically the idea of approaching the edge of a cliff and leaping off it, just think about the mindset and the physical sensations you're going to bring to that decision or bring to that moment. It's going to be fear. It's going to be hesitation. It's nervousness, anxiety, all those things. And so if we're approaching career pivots 
from that perspective and with that mindset, either we will never make the move or secondly, we will do it and then go, what on earth have I just done? Right. And so I think it's really important to sit back from all of that and think about, well, what are the other options that are available to me? Do I really need to leap off a cliff or treat this as leaping off a cliff? How else can I approach this career pivot? And how can I make it safe? Because I think safety and security are such big things for so many people. And sometimes I think they're underestimated and underplayed when it comes to career pivots. They're important. You've got to honour the things that matter to you. And if security matters to you, I think find a way to bring security into the mix. You don't need to ignore it. It doesn't need to be financial security or passion. You can have them both. You've just got to work out what that looks like. What's the recipe and what are the ingredients that allow you to build that picture to get you to where you want to get to? And now that you're there, what does life look like? Oh, life's amazing. I have to say I haven't looked back since making the move. It has been incredible. There is something so very special about coaching people and working in the equity space and just seeing when people have that moment of realisation. And sometimes it happens between sessions where people go away and they've done all these reflective tasks that I've set them and then something's just clicked And they come into a session with me and they're like, oh my God, this is happening and this is happening and I've done this and I've decided to do this and I've found what I want to do. Those moments are gold. Those are the things that you really do or I do really live for now. It's it's brilliant. And, you know, for me, I'm still still practicing as a lawyer as well. For me, that was my uh, de-risking of my move was to continue to do some legal work on the side. And I've realised actually, do you know what, there's a part of me that really enjoys that too. I didn't need to 100% give up law and it wasn't about hating law either, but it was about leaning into those things that really mattered to me and really wanting to make a difference, have some impact and be able to look back at life, you know, as we, you know, we talk about the whole deathbed, you know, what, what is it that you regret, wish for, look back on in life. These are the things that matter to me is creating an impact. And, you know, with two kids um, and my oldest being a a girl, it's really important to me that she also, not just she actually, both of them, really see that and see that I've created an impact, not just created an impact broadly, but also created impact for them in terms of how they navigate the world and also the tools that they have available to them to navigate the world as well. So life is, life is pretty good. Nini, we absolutely love having you part of the FW world and thank you for your instant and constant support. You never questioned what we were doing and you're always, you always say yes. I know how much you're loved as a mentor in our community and um, an inspiration for many for sitting back and deciding what you want to be when you grow up and just leaping off the cliff which is a very, you know, it is a, a very brave and, and difficult thing to do. Thank you for giving your insights today and um, I look forward to uh, having a long association with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 